We'll be reading the entirety of James 4. From whence come wars and fighting among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your own members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is the enmity of God? Whosoever, therefore, will be the friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, The spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother, and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one giver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that thou... Who art thou that judgest another? Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell, and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time, and then vanisheth away. For ye ought to say, If the Lord will, we shall live and, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings, all such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. You may be seated. Good morning. I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer as we begin our study in the word this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word of truth by which you have brought us forth. We praise you. For your good gifts, we praise you for your perfect gifts, all that you give according to what we've been reading here in the book of James is good. And today we acknowledge that with thanksgiving. We are grateful for the wisdom that you provide from above, wisdom that is freely given when we ask in faith with no doubting. The text today, Father, seems to address this conflict that stirs within us, this conflict that permeates outward among others, and conflict that ultimately marks us in enemy territory with you. We see from your word that sin easily entangles us. We see that the world and the flesh and the evil one Father, we see that they are great marketers, always pointing us away from you and the abundant life Christ has to offer. Help us, Lord, to always steward these members that you've given to us in our body, to steward them for your glory. And as children of God, may this church family regularly draw near to you in prayer. And may there be continual asking, continual seeking and knocking. 
And may all of our cares be cast upon you, knowing that you care deeply for each one of your children. So, Father, we ask this morning that you take your word, that you would plant it deep within us, that we might walk by faith, that we might walk in the light and walk steadfastly in this truth. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen. This morning, I'd like for you to imagine that you are a Union soldier wearing your Union blue attire. Some of you have blue on this morning. You've taken part in war training. You've stood alongside the men in your company. You've eaten many meals with them. You've shared stories with them. You've trained alongside them for many weeks, all in anticipation of pending battle against the enemy. And who's the enemy in this case? Is it not the Confederate army donned in their Confederate gray attire? I want you to imagine putting in all of the training, all of the time, all of the energy as a Union soldier. And then, and from what I hear... This happened on more than one occasion. You exchanged the Union blue uniform for the enemy's uniform. You crossed line. And so the information and the intelligence gathered as a soldier in the Union Army is going to come in handy now as you are working for the Confederates. You have some information to pass along. And the term that's used for that oftentimes is a traitor... If we change the scenario just slightly, you still have your Union blue uniform on, but you decide to align yourself with the Confederate Army. You're wearing the Union blue, but your heart is with the Confederate gray. I want you to think about that for just a moment. On the outside, no one's going to know the difference. I mean, after all, you're wearing the blue uniform. You're still following orders as you can, mechanically... Mechanically doing what your superior has called you to do, knowing that you still wear blue. But your heart is waiting for the opportunity to defect and show its allegiance to the Confederate gray. Now, these two scenarios, church, speak volumes about your heart. Scenario number one is a more blatant example, perhaps, in that the Union soldier exchanges his attire to fight now for the enemy. It's visible. He's changed his attire. The outward attire leaves no doubt whose side he's on. But the second scenario is the one I believe connects deeply to many. Many who today profess allegiance to the king of kings. Many who call themselves a Christian. A follower of Jesus. What's different about the second scenario? The soldier doesn't change his uniform in the second scenario. He keeps the Union blue on, but his allegiance is with the Confederate gray. He's wearing a blue uniform and interacting with other Union blue soldiers, eating with them, working alongside them, living life together with them, and yet his heart is elsewhere. His heart is entrenched in the cause of the Confederacy. Outwardly, it might not show, but inwardly there is a battle being waged. There's conflict within 
And it's going to result at some point in time in conflict among others in the camp. Church, look at James 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Literally, from where wars and from where fights among you. There's no verb in that sentence. For all you English folks out there, that's not a very good sentence. But that's the sentence in the Greek language. So what's the emphasis? The emphasis is placed upon the source of the wars and the fights. From where do they come? That's the idea. He's get, where do they come from? And he asks another question that answers his first question. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? If we were to paraphrase the literal idea, do you not realize that this is the source? Wars and fights spring from the lusts or selfish desires that set up camp, wage war in the members of your body. That's where it comes from. Now I want you to notice that James is asking about the source of wars. War. Big picture. War. Fights. Think about battles. Skirmishes. Make up the war. Okay? I want you to note too that James asks about these wars and fights. Notice the text says, which are among you. Among whom? Who's he writing to? The church. Contextually, I find that quite interesting because what I read in this Bible tells me that wars and fights ought not be among God's people. Amen? Ought not be. In fact, John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you. What does he say? What's the new commandment? Love one another. Love one another. We see that John 17, he's praying to the Father before he goes to the cross. And he prayed that we might all be what? One. Why? So that the world would see and the world would believe. That the world would get it. The world would see a message that these Christians truly do love one another. Acts 4.32. Remember that early church. It says the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, one soul. They had all things in common. The word common there is koinonia, fellowship. They had things in common. What was their common denominator, church? Christ. They rallied around Christ. Corinthians 1.10, Paul says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Be about the same things, Paul says. Be about Christ. In Philippians 1.27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I see you or whether I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Church, wars and fights in the body of Christ ought not be. That's not God's way. And yet James is addressing it, isn't he? So what ought not be present seems to be present in the life of this church James is addressing. And that seems to be usually the case as we look at the scripture, we read the scripture. and we, For instance, Paul, as he's addressing the church at Corinth in his first epistle, 
He's addressing certain situations, but most of what he writes, moved by the Holy Spirit, is addressing a problem, some kind of problem going on in the church. And so he is writing about something that has happened, something that needs correction, something that needs rebuke, needs exhortation. What's the source of all the wars and fights among you? By the way, the source, the the wars and the fights, that gives us a little bit more definition and detail into the disorder and confusion in James 3.16. You remember that? James 3.16? Where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. James doesn't leave his listener guessing, fumbling for the answer in James 4 verse 1. The source of such wars and fights is their lusts, which go, which they do this on, it's ongoing battle with the members of their body. Lusts, the word, hedonon. It's where we get our English word hedonism. You ever heard that word? Hedonism. Simple definition. The gratification of sensual, natural Fleshly desires. Sounds like that comes out of the wisdom from below to me. Hedonism is the uncontrolled personal desire. Personal desire. I want. My wants. The uncontrolled personal desire to fulfill every passion and whim that promises sensual, fleshly satisfaction and enjoyment. So the desire to fulfill these pleasures comes from selfishness, which is contrary to God, contrary to his word. The wars and fights within serve as an internal conflict. Internal. Verse 1 speaks of this internal conflict. And the source of such internal conflict is lust, the desires of the flesh to please self. Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 23 Jesus says, what comes out of a man, that's what defiles a man. What comes out of a man? For from within the heart of a man proceed, listen to this list, evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and defile a man. And then Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, he says, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Remedy for walking in the flesh. How about walk in the spirit? Right? If we have the spirit of Christ in us, let's walk in the spirit. Remedy for not walking in the flesh. Goes on, he says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Works of the flesh are evident. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, drunkenness. And he goes on, he says, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Those who are Christ's, if you're here today and you're Christ, listen to what this says. If you are Christ's, You've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In what way is this so? We need to ask the question, how so? Romans 6, 5 through 6. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, we are in Christ. Romans 6 speaks about our union with Christ. 
Okay? Certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this. Knowing what? That our old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with, might be now rendered inoperative. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. See, I read the, the list of evident works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, and I'm reminded of many things that have actually manifested themselves in the life of the church, even in the life of this church. Yes, this church, hope in Christ. Things which ought not to be, actually have been, and in some cases are. Like what? Well, a few that I've read. Selfish ambitions. Contentions. Jealousies. Outbursts of wrath. Idolatry. We could go on. I'll stop right there. The koinonia we share as a church is rooted and grounded in Christ's work at the cross. Amen? That's where it's grounded. But as we talked about last week, the faith and hope we have in God through Jesus Christ points to the empty tomb. That we serve a risen Savior. And as such, the church, the child of God, who has the Spirit of God abiding in him, operates in newness of life. Because of our union with Christ, church, we are no longer slaves to sin, but are slaves to God and being in Christ. These members that once catered full-time service to the flesh are now under obligation to render full-time service to the Spirit, resulting in, listen, resulting in abundant life. Amen. That's what we need. That's how we're to walk. See, the internal conflict that James speaks of in verse 1 is consistent no matter your station in life. You might be married here today. You might be single. You might be young. You might be old. You might be black. You might be white. You might be rich. You might be poor. You might be male. You might be female. It doesn't matter. The wars and fights among the church, which, remember, ought not be, it all stems from what's going on in the heart. All stems from what's going on in the heart. So take a moment to address the internal conflict. Have you considered the source of your internal conflict? Have you considered that your own desires, your selfish ambitions perhaps, have blocked the flow of God's grace in your life? We're going to get to next week. Just a little hint for next week, but we're going to, I'll put it out there on the table for now. God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Are you finding yourself on a cycle, kind of like a, you know, this up and down, every now and then, every week, every two week cycle of anger, bitterness, feeling lonely, depressed, frustrated, worried, fearful, skeptical. Have you considered the driving source behind all of that? I believe James is pointing out the internal conflict that's present, and he longs to see the church walk in freedom. The freedom which Christ has already accomplished for them, and guess what? He's accomplished it for you too. The lusts, the cravings for self-gratification, self-improvement, selfish gain, we can do all self, all these, this whole list of self things. 
the lusts that set up camp and wage war on your members. Here's the problem, though, and from what we just read. You're no longer in the business of employing your members as slaves to sin if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ. If you are in Christ, you've crucified the old man. And if you have crucified the old man, you're no longer a slave to sin. That's an amen. That's good news. When you arrive at the heart, you find yourself at the core of the problem. The problem described in James chapter 4 verse 1, lusts that serve self. It does not go away, church, with a patch. It doesn't go away with some simple behavior modification. It doesn't go away by itself. It's not just going to disappear. It doesn't go away by doing a good deed or offering up some prayer. If you really desire to address this problem, you need a changed heart. Next question, how do I get a changed heart? Good news, God's in the business of changing hearts. God does that. Through the ministry of the Spirit, the power of His Word. When God changes your heart, He fully equips you to live here as a new creation should. The Holy Spirit in you is the power moving you forward. He's your greatest teacher. He's always guiding, He's always pointing and directing and illuminating and revealing and shining toward Christ and the words of Christ. God changes your heart and when He does, He equips you fully with the Holy Spirit and with the Holy Spirit then abiding in you, you are to walk as He directs, being a witness to Jesus, Acts 1, verse 8. Amen? That's what we're supposed to be about doing. James moves on to address a different kind of conflict in verses 2 and 3. He says, you lust and do not have. You murder, you covet, cannot obtain. You fight in war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now, level one conflict pertains to the heart and it's manifested internally. But if you think that internal conflict remains on the inside only, you're fooling yourself because James goes on to address external conflict in the church. External conflict. What began in the heart of the individual is now manifesting itself in the life of the church. You see some of those works of the flesh that I mentioned earlier in Mark 7 and Galatians chapter 5. If you read through there, you'll notice pretty quickly many of those are visible. They're evident. You can see them. When someone gets angry and blows up, can you see it? Absolutely. Someone is bickering, arguing, complaining. Do you notice it? Absolutely. You notice those things. What ought not be is actually happening. So look what's going on according to verse 2. He says, you lust and do not have or do not possess. You murder. The word murder there, perhaps addressing the path to murder. Because you remember, on so many occasions, James, is pull, he seems to pull from the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember Jesus saying anything about murder? What's at the heart of murder? Anger. Anger, it's, anger is, is, is on the pathway to murder. 
And perhaps James has that idea pointing out to the church that, hey, you know, this is where this leads to. He's just, he's just jumping to the conclusion of the matter. Murder, that's where it goes. Covet, cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you do not have. So the conflict, which goes public, so to speak, in the life of the church, it's recognized, it's seen, it's visible to all. The stuff in the heart described in verse 1, lust waging war in your members, eventually shows itself. Whether it's lust, whether it's murder, whether it's outbursts of wrath, coveting, idolatry, selfish ambition, these things come out of the heart. We just read those passages And they're called works of the flesh. And they stand contrary to the works of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. to self-control. It's tempting, I believe, when we're looking at such a text here in verse 2 to focus upon the specific acts of the flesh listed. I'd like to draw your attention to a pattern that I see set forth in the text. Listen, Listen to the pattern. It says, you lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war and you do not have. See, all all the maneuvering, all the deceiving, all the scheming, all the manipulating, trying to put things exactly where they need to be in order to make... I'm reminded of David as he became caught in his cords of sin. Remember that? You lust and you do not have. You know what? You do not have. There is a billion dollar business today that would lie to you and tell you, you can have what you lust after. Church, it's a lie. It's a lie. It's a flat out lie. There's another industry that caters to your flesh as well. It offers to entertain you through moving pictures on a big screen. There's another industry that will keep you on the cutting edge with the culture that you're in and provide you with unlimited apps. I don't know a whole lot about apps. I know some. I know just a little bit. And, and hear me on this. I'm not saying all of technology is, is evil. Technology is neutral. It's how we use it, church. Okay? I want to be very clear about that. But these apps which look neat, these apps that appeal to your flesh, they advertise. Here's what they advertise. You need me. You need me. You need me. You need me. And truth is, you probably don't need it. Some of them perhaps are helpful. Some of them perhaps simplify things in your life. But where, I ask the question, where does it end? The app which you so desperately need today turns into the app that you need tomorrow and the day after and the day after. And it slowly becomes a time eater. And if you're not careful, you're going to find yourself bowing, perhaps unintentionally. Nevertheless, bowing to the technology gods, internet, social media, app world, whatever it is. It's when you begin leveraging that technology to feed an appetite. Now we're looking at James 4. Be alert and watchful, church, in these things. Technology is not bad. It's not wicked. It's not evil in and of itself. But if we're not careful, we can use it. And it'll end up being a God of our own making. The text in James 4, verse 2, actually reveals why you don't have, cannot obtain, do not have. He says, because you do not ask. Ouch. (laughs) 
Let that sit for just a moment. You don't ask. A church that doesn't ask the Father. Isn't that interesting? James, I believe, is unveiling a large problem in the church today. A problem that is hitched, the church is hitched to the world on this one. The world's problems at the core have to do, just like all of our problems at the core, have to do with sin. A lot of bad things happen, even to good people, because of sin. The world is quick to question, where's God when evil comes, right? You hear that question, you read the articles, they all pop up, everything. Something bad happens, everybody's wanting to ask the question, where's God? It's interesting they're wanting to ask the question when something bad happens. The church, though, when she operates from lusts that wage war within, when, when that takes shape and manifests itself in outbursts of wrath, coveting, idolatry, contentions, all the selfishness that comes from the heart reveals why one does not have and cannot obtain. See, selfishness at its core, selfishness fails to take God into account. Do we see this? Selfishness doesn't take God into account. So think about it. The church that fails to consider what God has to say. The church that fails to think and consider what God has to say. What kind of church is that? Not much of a church. Because when I read the Bible, when I read what, what the Bible says about his church, the thing that, that drove the church was Newness of life, spirit moving through these men and women, teaching and preaching the word, the truth, being a witness. They were consumed in that. That was what they were consumed in. We live, do we not, among a people of unclean lips, <laughs> a people who operate from an independent Spirit, independent, detached, don't like, to be det- don't like to be attached, don't like to be connected, independent. You're told you can have it your way. You're told it's about you. Do, do what's best for you. God says, on the contrary, it's all about him. It's all about his priorities. It's all about his glory. It's all about his honor. Whose side are you on? I'd say what, what Paul says in the book of Romans. Let God be true and every man a liar. Two things I want you to see here in verses 2 and 3. First of all, he says, you do not have and cannot obtain because you do not ask. I want you to think about it. The internal conflict that wages war in your members is rooted in your lusts, your selfish desires, pursuit of pleasing yourself. Why is there any need to consult God? You got it figured out. In fact, one writer says many of them do not even think of asking God for help of any kind because they consider themselves self-sufficient, fully able to take care of themselves. They believe that all their needs and wants can be met by human means through their own wisdom, power, and diligence. Consequently, it never occurs to them to ask him for anything. James is pointing something out, I believe, here for the church to listen to. 
When you are so concerned about your life, your priorities, your agendas, your hobbies, your selfish gain, etc. When you're consumed with coveting and fighting to get what you want. And you do all you can to manipulate the situation in your favor. God is not even on your thoughts. He's not in your radar. He's not around. And by definition, you're acting ungodly. For you're not thinking about God at all. You don't have the thing or the things that you covet because you don't ask God. Verse 3 takes this a step farther. Not only do you not ask your heavenly father, not only is he nowhere to be found in your thoughts on the situation, but secondly, what you do ask, you will not receive. Why? The text gives us the answer. Because you ask amiss. The word amiss, we could substitute and, and put in there, you ask wrongly, you ask evilly. Wickedly. John 14, 13. Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 1 John chapter 5, 14 and 15. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. John 15, verse 7, before he goes to the cross, he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. You see, the things you ask for will not receive. You're not going to receive them because you ask amiss. That's what James says. The text provides, I believe, a window into the motive for one's asking. He goes on, he says, that you may spend it on your pleasure. That you may spend it on your pleasure. So you, so you don't have because you don't ask. Emphasizes a disconnected relationship. You're not thinking about him. Ungodly. You're walking, living ungodly. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. Emphasizes a lack of understanding of who God is. God is not in the business of granting selfish desires. He delights in the prayers of the righteous. Those who are diligent to do his will. And you do not receive Because God sees your motive in asking. It's for your own good pleasure and not mine, God says. Jesus' parable of the rich fool. You might remember that. Remember his ground yielded a plentiful harvest in one year. And since he had no room to store his crops, he decided to tear down his old barns and build bigger, newer barns. He thought it was a good idea. In fact, you see what he says in Luke 12, 19. I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many good things laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. I want you to listen to what God says to the man. Verse 20. Fool. First of all, when he, when you, when he begins to address you by fool, that is not good. Fool. That's how it begins. This very night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Here's the point of the parable, verse 21. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Three chapters later, Jesus tells a parable about a prodigal son who squanders, who wastes his possessions in a far country. It says when he had spent all there. Remember, he's there, he's hanging out, and he's, oh, this is a great thing. I got all these possessions, my dad... He has no, no mindset about what, what his dad has given up and all that he's left and leaving his home, his father, and all this. And he just goes out and he just blows it all. If 
finds himself in the midst of a famine, finds himself in the middle of a mud pile with a bunch of pigs. He spent it all. In fact, that word spent there in Luke 15, same word James uses right here. Same word, spend, that you may spend. The word spend has in mind this idea to completely use up, to squander. You're asking and you're not receiving because you ask amiss that you might spend it lavishly on your selfish, greedy desires. That's my translation based on the text. No wonder he doesn't give you what you're asking. You do not receive because you desire to squander it on yourself. You have no intentions to glorify God in this desire. It's for you. It's for your glory. It's for your honor. It's for your position. It's for your reputation. And James says, you don't ask, nor do you receive what you ask. And you don't receive the thing you ask for because you're just selfish. You ever take an inventory of your unanswered prayers? Could it be that your motivation for asking him is simply to please yourself? Or to just simply make your life more comfortable? Nothing inherently wrong about praying for someone to be better if they're sick. I'm not saying that. Are you attempting to position yourself with God wearing the Union blue while craving the stuff of the Confederate gray? Just see where the parallel there is, where we can go with that? Our petitioning of God, church, must take into account what God thinks and what God says in his word. You know, we're called to Matthew 7. Matthew 7 tells us, Sermon on the Mount, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And he calls us, this God that we serve is a God who calls us unto himself. He calls us, listen, he calls us into relationship. And prayer is one avenue where that relationship gets manifested. So if prayer is characteristic of this relationship with God through Jesus Christ, what kind of relationship are you cultivating when you ask with selfish motives that you might get something to lavishly spend on you? Mm. What's that relationship look like? Husbands, if you are always only about yourself, you're married, you wear the ring symbolic of your covenant before God, and yet... If your life is about you and you only, and you, you only tend to yourself, and you, and you make decisions that only favor you, how's that relationship going to be after a time? If you take that example and you apply it to your relationship with God, the creator of heaven and earth, by the way, the one who breathed life into you and made you a living being. You see, God saw fit to rescue you before the foundation of the world. Through his son Jesus, God loved you with a cross and he holds for you everlasting life, a reservation in heaven with Christ himself. God is the giver of every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And how do you, retreat, how do you treat that relationship, church? How do you treat it? He's the king of kings and lord of lords. Just because, just because you might be wearing that union blue attire. Don't think for a moment. God is blind to the matters of your heart. He knows your heart. There's going to be a day when he declares to some, away from me. I never knew you. 
The word no there has in mind relationship. Away from me. I never had a relationship with you. You never had a relationship with me. James continues building the point as he moves into verse 4. And once again, we talk about the beginning of an address. This is a little eye-opening. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what starts as an internal conflict eventually manifests itself outwardly. And in the church, the wars and battles, these things which ought not be, are happening. Why? Because people are operating in an ungodly fashion with little or no thought of God, no thought of God's glory, no thought of God's honor. And when they do ask of him, they're concerned only to get the things that they covet. They don't ask out of a desire to accomplish his will and further his work and further his kingdom agenda. So what's at stake here as James arrives in verse 4? Eternal stake. There are eternal stakes here. There's internal conflict, external conflict among the brethren. It gets manifested and then there's this third level of conflict. I just call it eternal conflict. The situation being addressed impacts souls for eternity. It speaks in part to the urgency set before us even as elders here in the body. God has called us to provide watch care. Hebrews 13, 17 says this very clearly. He's called us to provide watch care over the souls of the flocks entrusted to our care. To provide watch care for your soul. As a shepherd lovingly cares for his flock, the shepherd is also called in the scripture to exhort and convict those who contradict. Titus chapter 1. And as Paul warns Titus, Regarding Psalm on the island of Crete, the same warning holds true for elders today, whether we're talking about here at Hope in Christ or another church. But there are occasions when certain mouths need to be stopped. That's what it says in the text. Titus chapter 1, read it. It's there. Verse 10, I believe it is. Because there are some who are subverting whole households. That's the text. I'm not making this up. There are some who even today, Titus 1:16, who profess to know God, but in works they deny Him. They might have the uniform, they might have the right uniform on, but their heart's far from Him. Being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. You see, when James uses the words adulterers and adulteresses as the beginning there of verse 4. That, that, ought to mean, that ought to mean something. That would be a flashing red light there as you read that. That ought to mean something. He's addressing God's people. The image is abundantly found in the Old Testament. If you know your Old Testament, you know that there are many, many instances where there are references here to adulterers and adulteresses, his people. Jeremiah 3.20, for example. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel says the Lord. And in fact, God used one of his prophets as a living example of, of this adulterous lifestyle that his people were living. You remember the prophet? Hosea. I want you to go marry that harlot. 
as an example of what was happening in the life of his people. Hosea lived it. Jesus himself spoke often of an adulterous and perverse generation, didn't he? See, friendship with the world is hostility toward God. That's what the text says. The adulterer is one who has forsaken his first love. Revelation chapter 2 verse 4 ought to remind you perhaps of that. And within the context of the message delivered there, directed to the church at Ephesus, Christ says these words, Nevertheless, I have this against you. There's some good things you got going, church of Ephesus. Here's what I've got against you. You have left your first love. You see, the pull to, to turn another way, to walk a different path, to do as Christian did. I'm reminded of that picture in Pilgrim's Progress. Remember, he's walking along that rocky path and maybe his feet are starting to hurt a little bit and he sees that fence there and he sees that meadow on the other side of the fence. It looked, it looked like a better path to walk on, so he hops over. How often do we desire to do that, church? The pole is there to walk the different way, to please yourself, to pursue what many call this American dream kind of life. Friendship meant something back in the day. Friendship was loyalty, commitment, devotion, single-mindedness, to use the term we've talked about in James. If you had a friendship established, you had a certain trust built between the two of you. And where we've been in James, we've been able to see that Abraham is deemed a friend of God. He believed in God, was justified by his works when he offered Isaac on the altar, and God credited to his account righteousness. Where things currently stand in your life, do you see yourself as a friend of God? Or a friend of the world? I know the answer you would like to give. Perhaps this would be a good question to ask your spouse. Maybe young people would be good to ask a parent, someone you trust. Let me ask the question differently. Is there ample evidence from your life that you are a friend of God or a friend of the world? What's your life say? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Enmity is hostility. What do we know about this world? This system that operates in such a way that is contrary to the ways of God. 1 John chapter 2 is a prime place to land, isn't it? 15, 16, and 17. John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Did you hear that? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I'll read that again. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, he's going to give you a picture. Here are a few things that are in the world. This maybe is a summary of all that's in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Is not of the Father, but of the world. And the world is passing away. 
If you didn't hear what he said in those first few verses, that's the last part. He's, he's trying to help you. The world's passing away. And lust of it's passing away. It's not going to be here. But he who does the will of God abides forever. In Paul's final letter to Timothy, I want you to listen to what he says. I believe it's in chapter 4, 2 Timothy 4. He says, be diligent to come to me quickly. Remember, he's in prison. He's about to leave this earth. And he says, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. Demas, who, when you read the end of Colossians chapter 4, you see that Demas was with the physician Luke while Paul's in prison in Colossae. Demas is a ministry partner. And here in 2 Timothy, as Paul's about to leave this earth... You almost sense he's grieved. It just pains him to be able to speak and see, to know that Demas had forsaken him for this present world. It revealed his true heart. Listen to how he closes verse 4. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Makes himself. The word there has in mind places himself, chooses to set himself in such a position. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world chooses to take sides with the world. No one's twisting your arm to go that way. It's the way that you're going. Why are you going that way? Because you're interested in carrying out your own selfish pleasures and desires more so than walking in the Spirit. things of God. John 15, 19. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. It because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. John 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you. He's talking to his brothers here, by the way. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. And then there's that wonderful psalm, Psalm 73. I love Psalm 73. The psalmist begins, he says, you know, as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, he says. For I was envious of the boastful, and when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He's asking the question, is my pursuit of holy living, is it really worth it? And at the end of the psalm, he says, comes to the realization. The Lord grants him this understanding in the sanctuary. And 25 and 26, whom have I in heaven but you? There is none upon earth that I desire besides you. There is none upon earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you're the strength. You're the portion of my heart. And those last two verses of Psalm 73, he says, For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for, listen, you have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. Adulterers and adulteresses. But it is good for me to draw near to God. We'll be talking about that next week. That I may declare all your works. So there stands this eternal conflict awaiting those who press in uh, and, and are pursuing their friendship with the world. If you are making it a habit to partner with the ways of the world, I beg you to hear what God's saying here at the end of verse 4. He says, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Question, 
What happens to those who are enemies of God? Anybody here know? Anybody know? Enemies of God? Destroyed. Destroyed. Squashed. They lose. Thinking of the battle imagery we talked about. They lose. Worse, though, than any earthly battle, the enemies of God perish for all eternity. The eternal conflict is real, church, for those who stand with the world. Please don't think for a moment that your Union Blue uniform is sufficient to resolve the pending eternal conflict. Are you relying on your Union Blue? And you can define, you sit here and you can define what that Union Blue might be for you. Anything that you have been relying on as a substitute for a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. God is your commanding officer. And he desires your whole being. All of you. Heart, mind, soul, strength. If you are truly in Christ, your life will reflect the life of Christ. Imperfectly, yes. But it will continually be set apart for God, for his word, for his truth, for his will, for as long as you have this earthen tent. Remember, you are a pilgrim and a sojourner if you are in Christ. And remember that the world is passing away. Sojourners don't attach themselves to things that are here in the world. Because this world's not their home. Citizens of heaven store up treasure for themselves where? In heaven. Not here on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Where your treasure is, church, there your heart will be also. Live for God, church. Both feet in, heart engaged, alive to God, walking in newness of life. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. That he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 4. You see, good soldiers of Jesus Christ desire to please him with everything that they have. You know, there's one more note about the Civil War that I was interested in as I was thinking about that illustration. The Civil War was quite a tragedy. The one thing that really made it such a tragedy was the fact that It pitted the North and the South. These United States of America were fighting against themselves. People in the same country were fighting against themselves. How is it, church, that the church of Jesus Christ can also have wars and fights among her. Of all people, the church ought not be fighting against herself. Christ has called us to be of one mind. What is that mind? It's the mind in Philippians 2.5, the mind of Christ. We are to have one mind. Walk together, striving for the gospel. 
there are a lot of things in here as we, if, if we were to go down the row. Each one of you could probably point out something that you like, something that's a little different, something I wish it was this. I wish. I, I hope you heard what we just talked about today in the text. And I hope you see the bigger picture. That we are supposed to be showing to others the unity, the unity, the togetherness, the oneness that Christ and the Father had together. That the world would see and the world would believe. Can we get on board with what God wants and desires for his church? And stop walking as individual units. But walking as connected parts of his body. We're we're connected to him as we're connected one to another. And we walk in the power of the spirit together. It's a beautiful thing. That's the picture I see. I hope you get the picture too. Where there needs to be course correction, let's make course correction. Asking of God. Where, well, how do we do course correction? Repent. Repent. Take it to God. Turn from it. Let's walk the way he's called us to walk. Amen? Amen. We're going to pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Oh, Father, these truths that you've given here, these uh, instructions, these charges, these rebukes. Father, they may not feel good to us. Father, these are words of truth that we need to hear. I pray we would walk in these words of truth. That we would have no desire to be a friend of the world. That we would today have an understanding, perhaps, of what it means to walk with the world. And that we cannot walk with the world and at the same time have a love for you. We cannot serve two masters. I pray that we would be aligned under your leadership, under your authority. Father, that we would walk in newness of life, that we would walk together in newness of life, that there would be no bickering, there would be no arguing, there would be no complaining. But Lord, we would be able as a church to be able to communicate with one another, to relate to one another out of our relationship that's thriving, that's growing in Christ. Help us in this, Lord, I pray. I pray your church here at Hope in Christ would cause others to take note of what's going on. They may not be able to recognize it, but Lord, they're seeing something different in us. And I pray that we be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have, the gospel, to be able to speak that truth and to do so with meekness. Father, help us to do that. May there not be any contentions and fights and bickering here in this place. For your sake. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.